Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The year, 2009. And whose fucking podcast is that? The movie, The Hangover. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. Could the list be longer? Yes. Should it be longer? Absolutely. But that is not the premise. The premise here is to only pick 100, to make those 100 films hurt you. What are we eliminating? What are we putting on it? We want each choice to make you feel a little bit of pain. And we are close. We are close to our one-year anniversary. We have 40 films on the list. And this last year, we've been looking at a ton of films. And we're going to add a few more to our list in just a few more episodes. And we're going to get closer to our goal of 100 great movies. Amy, have you been thinking about the last year? Uh, I know we talked about this last time, too. But I, I've been really mulling over all the movies we've watched in the last year. I really want to make sure that I pick the right ones. Because I enjoyed a lot of these films. I know. I know. It's really hard. Are you getting any empathy in your system for the AFI coming up with a list of 100 films and us being like, that's dumb. Why is this there? What are you doing? What's your problem? And now we and you all who have been joining us and listening with us and shaping the list and telling us what you think, we will all have our asses on the line. And, you know, to continue to make sure that the listeners here put their asses on the line, we want you to compile maybe uh, five or six movies that you want to add to this list from the last year as we branched away from the AFI list. You can do it at our Discord page, which you can currently find uh, under my Discord, which is discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Start making your list. Let's start a thread. Let's start talking about what we want on there, because I think it's going to be a real knockdown, drag out battle. A lot of people, a lot of people came after me for not liking speed, 
But uh, I think when they <laughs> when they saw Fugitive, uh, they also saw that you know, wow, I forgot about this movie, and this movie is pretty damn good. Um, but yes, I've taken the most heat on this show, Amy. I understand now what it's like to be in your position uh, with a hot take, because man, oh man, uh, the speed reactions. I was not, I was not <laughs> ready for it. That and Jurassic Park have taken a lot of heat, but Jurassic Park, at least I feel like I have like uh, a 70-30 split. It just the 30 are very vocal, but the 70 are on my side. Uh, Speed could not find many people on my side. It's much more of like an an 80-20 split. I still say watch the movie, don't remember it. It's kind of like you threw yourself under the bus. Mm. (laughs) I like that. Uh, Well, Amy, you know, last week we... um, incorrectly identified The Hangover as the highest grossing comedy film or summer comedy film of all time. We are in the middle of our blockbuster extravaganza here, summer we blockbusters. Are. And we've up until gone... this point, we've just been doing lots of like action, nostalgia, sci-fi, pretty much everything with Steven Spielberg's thumbprint on it in some way. And Paul, you rightly have been banging the drum and saying, where are our comedies? Where are the yes. comedies? Comedies are where we find original material. Comedies are where we get away from like the the mire of intellectual property, which is beginning to crawl up my limbs like black tar. I'm, be- I'm becoming some <laughs> sort of fossilized mastodon. I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really dying here. And so it was natural that of the two comedy films we started with, one of them had to be The Hangover. A movie that came out was a gigantic splash, gigantic, launched several careers and became, correctly, the highest grossing R-rated comedy film of all time at that time. Just broke every single record and was like, ta-da, I'm here. Yeah, and I thought it still held that place on the all-time list, but I was wrong. We were, I mean, I'm going to say I was wrong. I don't know if you thought you were wrong, but Amy, you know what is the number one film? We were close, though. Very close. The I number find one. It shocking. Yeah, the number one comedy film of all time is The Hangover Part Two. The dun, Hangover dun, dun. Part Two. Uh, Hangover One is seven. Hangover Three is 11. Um, Ted is number two. Meet the Fockers is number three. And a movie that is not even a um, an American film is number four. It actually is the film that was the basis of, I don't know if you remember it, but this Kevin Hart, uh, Brian Cranston film. Uh, the film that it was based on was a French film called Les Untouchables. Yes, I have seen both of those. And the Brian Cranston one is truly awful. I've also never seen a Fokker. Am I missing out? Uh, Meet the Parents one, from my recollection, is pretty fantastic. And what I think is really interesting about this list is, of course, the hangovers are higher than the original one. Because when you have a hit like the hangover and the second one is coming out hell yeah, you want to watch that movie. Like you, like everyone goes out because everyone who watched it on DVD or streaming, probably not even streaming is a thing at that point, uh, which it isn't, you are running to the theater because you know this is going to be good. Same thing for Meet the Fockers. Uh, and I would argue uh, in both of those cases, not, 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 the, not the case. Not the case. Sequel's oh, not are better. You, are you saying flat out that The Hangover 2 is terrible? It does not uh, exceed the first film. That's what I'm going to say. No. I mean, I have a whole theory about how The Hangover 2 could have been rescued and could have been brilliant. And, oh, wow. And, and it was a, a 
belief that I held deeply throughout the entire movie up until like two thirds of the way through. And I was like, you're not going to do the plot twist that you should obviously be doing. Wait, now I want to hear it. Oh, well, give we'll it get to into me. it. We'll get into it. We'll get into oh, it. Oh, wow. OK, Go I love it. this. All right. Excellent. Well, I am very excited to talk to you about uh, this movie. So maybe, uh, Amy, a toast to a film that once was the biggest grossing R-rated comedy of all time and now no longer. Let's unspool it. The year is 2009. The United States suffers the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. In the 1930s, the World Health Organization declares H1N1 swine flu a global pandemic. Ho, ho, ho. How, how quaint that feels. Uh, Somali pirates take down Captain Phillips' cargo ship and geese uh, take down a plane, uh, Captain Sully's plane, in the Hudson River. Barack Obama is inaugurated as the 44th U.S. president and Michael Jackson is found dead. The hot movies of the year are Avatar, Up, The Twilight Saga New Moon, as well as the Greek drama Dogtooth. And today's film, The Hangover. Amy, tell us who's in it, what's it about, who made it. Give us the details. The Hangover. It is directed by Todd Phillips. He of old school a few years before this. And it is written by John Lucas and Scott Moore, or at least John Lucas and Scott Moore got the WGA credit. Well, once again, we have this case where the director, Todd Phillips, insists that he rewrote most of it with his buddy, Jeremy Gerlich. And in fact, he gave an interview calling the WGA, I think, like the Winers Guild Association because he felt like his friend Jeremy, even more so than him, did not get enough writing credit for this film. But here's the setup. Four friends go to Vegas for a bachelor party. Three of them wake up in the morning in their $4,500 suit at Caesars with no idea where they last saw the groom. And their quest to find the groom crosses paths with tigers and stolen cop cars, Mike Tyson. There's a chicken for some reason. Um, There's a blackout wedding to Heather Graham. And of course, there is an angry and very naked gangster played by Ken Jeong. Uh, Our three leads here are Bradley Cooper, Zach Galifianakis, and Ed Helms. And this is the film that made them into major, 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 major stars. I mean, if not for The Hangover, Bradley Cooper would not have eight Oscar nominations. He would not have eight Oscar nominations without this movie, one of which is for producing Todd Phillips' most recent movie, The Joker. Now, Paul, I am very curious to explore the through line today of The Hangover to The Joker. Um, But first, let's just take a listen to the film. Hello. How about that ride in? I guess that's why they call it Sin City. (laughs) You guys might not know this, but I consider myself a bit of a loner. I tend to think of myself as a one-man wolf pack. But when my sister brought Doug home, I knew he was one of my own. And my wolf pack, it grew by one. So were there two of us, there were two of us in the wolf pack I was alone first in the pack, and then Doug joined in later. And six months ago, when Doug introduced me to you guys, I thought, wait a second, could it be? And now I know for sure, I just added two more guys to my wolf pack. All right. right. Four of us wolves running around the desert together in Las Vegas, looking for strippers and cocaine. So tonight, 
and make a toast. What? What do you got there? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. The Hangover was released on June 2nd, 2009. And yes, as we said, it was a major success. It made 469, yes, nice, million dollars. And of course, they did immediately make the two sequels. The second did make even more money. So I think you could call these guys, Phillips, the dudes, a supergroup. Kind of like the supergroup dominating the pop charts that weekend. The Black Eyed Peas with a boom, boom, pow. <laughs> I realized. Wow. Uh huh. I know. I really stretched for that. I realized also, I think we had to play the Black Eyed Peas again when Dogtooth came out. So I'm sorry for the double Black Eyed Peas booming. That song was a huge, huge hit. 2009 had some weird ass taste. And I kind of once again regret that I could not play the third song on the Billboard chart that weekend, which I think is a lot more apropos. It is Jamie Foxx's Blame It on the Alcohol. Not bad. Not a bad time for music. Not a bad time for music. This is like really? a very, um, I mean, an interesting time for music, right? I mean, <laughs> well, I do like that Jamie Foxx song. I've tried to do that at karaoke. It's very hard. Uh, Jamie Foxx, very talented guy. Uh, and I'm constantly kind of interested and intrigued by what he does and how he views himself when I've heard him on Howard Stern. The way that he talks about himself and his career and himself as an actor and performer are uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, I get to be more of a Jamie Foxx fan uh, as I continue to live my life. And I hope that everyone out there does the same thing. Just, you know, uh, you know open yourself to JF. See what he's got in store for you. Maybe he's got some answers for you. I don't know. I don't know. He might, man. He might, man. I mean, someday I think we'll be able to respect and applaud his performance in Django Unchained even more than we have to this day. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and if it wasn't for Will Smith turning down Django, we would never have gotten that performance. Um, and this is an interesting thing because The Hangover is a movie that is known throughout Hollywood as being a film that pretty much everyone turned down. Now, Amy, uh, as I get into this film with you, I have to just be incredibly honest uh, at the at the forefront. This is going to be the hardest movie uh, ever for me to talk about because uh, many of the people involved in this movie on many, <laughs> many levels are, uh, are close friends of mine. Some of them we're at my wedding. Uh, others have hired me. Others have hired me very recently. So um, I may be holding back some thoughts in this episode. I may I may be going lighter than normal, but I want to make sure that I'm fairly saying uh, that that is the case. Like I I'm I'm here to to let you all know that I'm not an unbiased. I can't have a unbiased point of view on this movie. I am incredibly biased, and these are my friends. And uh, yeah, so that's where I'm at. I didn't realize how many. I didn't realize how much it was until until I actually watched it last night. And then I remembered that I watched Hangover with Bradley Cooper, Zach Galifianakis, and Ed Helms, and Brody Stevens in the first ever screening. They never had seen it before. It was on the lot uh, of the studio because they were like, oh, yeah, come and just like hang out and we'll watch this movie. And I remember the vibe 
at the end, which was, oh, this is going to be a very big movie. Like it just, there was something about being in that small screening room of 25 people um, that just felt like, right, we get it. This is, this is like, I remember leaving, I remember leaving that, that screening and, and immediately calling my agent and being like, this movie is going to be big. We should try to make this other movie that I've been writing with my friend. I was like, I think this type of movie is going to be the next big thing. Uh, so that's kind of where my story of this movie even begins at. Like I was at a, not even a premiere. Like I was at a, Hey, Zach, Bradley, Ed, you want to watch this movie? Kind of a screening. So that was, uh, that's, that's where I start with this movie. So that's, that's how much I was kind of tied to it. I have a couple questions. Mm-hmm. I also, uh, had read the script and tried to audition for it and, and couldn't get it. But that that's that's that could be said for a lot of things. One, whoever was at your wedding, how did they behave? Great. Yeah. They were at the yeah, they were at the I'm trying to, I have more than more than one at my wedding. Did you have a bachelor party? Uh yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um I did have a bachelor party. Uh, that was at a house in Malibu, um, that, uh, was lovely and uh, amazing. And actually a part of that story is in a, um, documentary on Netflix about, uh, people using mushrooms that happened at my bachelor party. So, uh, a part of it has been, uh, crystallized in, uh, in documentary form. Okay. And two, when you saw The Hangover and thought this kind of movie is going mm-hmm. to be the next thing. What does this kind of movie mean to you? It was exciting to me because at that point, you know, Bradley Cooper was a guy who I just really liked from Alias. I didn't know Bradley that well. I would hang out with him occasionally. Ed was a buddy. Zach was uh, a comedian who I knew and hung out with and was also, these were not famous people. These were just like good people. And it was like, oh, that idea. And I think this is what was so great about this movie. And I think uh, Apatow has done this. I think Seth Rogen has done this. It's like introducing you to people that are very, very funny and very, very good that you don't know. So it wasn't a movie where it was like, oh, Will Ferrell and Jack Black, you know, are all in this movie. Like it was new faces. And it felt like, oh, if this movie is going to be successful, there's a chance to go make another one of these with people who are in that same kind of bracket, in my mind, that the yeah. ensemble, an ensemble comedy where you didn't need to have like the big A-list star. And now that's not to say that this movie didn't try to get an A-list star. Like I said, this is a movie where I remember hearing a ton of people who've passed. And, and part of the reason why I have to be a little bit careful in this episode is because there's a lot of stuff that I know about this movie that no one knows about this movie. So I have to determine what I know publicly and what I know privately. Wait, so what happens inside Paul Shear's head during this episode stays inside Paul Shear's head? Yeah, you'll probably hear me going like, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But I do know there are a couple things uh, that I, I do know so many people passed, and I know it was like Paul Rudd and Jack Black and Jonah Hill, uh, because every time they attached a new name the casting would kind of change a little bit. And it was like, oh, if they got Jonah, it's going to be a lot younger. If they go over here, it might be over. There was a lot of 
that script, I remember reading that script in the back of a, a van, I think when we were shooting, oh man, maybe it was Human Giant at that point. I don't remember where, but I remember reading it and going, okay, who could I be? Who could I be? Uh, and, you know, uh, obviously I think the, the Helms part and maybe, uh, maybe the Zach part, I mean, uh, depends on how they were going to shoot it. But it was like just trying to get a meeting because at that point, Todd Phillips was meeting everyone. And then I got to be in a Todd Phillips movie uh, just a little bit before this or after that. I can't even remember anymore. Um, I always say I have the the <laughs> the unique honor of being in Todd Phillips' least successful film. So uh, School, School for, for Scoundrels. Scoundrels? I yes. saw that. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, many people did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, weirdly... I think that I saw The Hangover in the same screening room you did, but a different screening. Oh, interesting. Because um, this is a movie that they, the studio decided to show to some critics on the lot, like early, early, like before, you know, the cycle where you review it. Because um, the way that film criticism kind of works sometimes is like a lot of times you watch like the movies that are coming out, you know, on say like the next Friday, you watch them either like just that week right before or maybe the week right. before that. Or if you work for like a long lead print magazine, you might see them like two months earlier, three, but it's a little bit. So you can write like features. Yeah, features. But then sometimes there's a movie, like a movie that you can tell the studio is like, oh, we nailed it. And they'll invite you to come see it really early just to be like, we know we nailed it, right? Yeah, we nailed it. We totally nailed it. And I remember seeing this on the lot and walking out and being like, whoa, I have eight not seen a comedy like this in my entire adult life you know up until that point like that felt so out there and dramatic and serious that had like a tone that felt really unique to me from the get-go like in the modern era you know a tone where like you know the credits are going on and you're hearing like this kind of like sinister music happening But also it stood out for me because this is one of those movies where you walk out. I don't even think I had like a smartphone at the time, but you walk out and you're like, okay, who the hell was everybody in that movie? Like, yeah. who were these people? Why don't I really know them? Like, why have, why have I not really seen them before? Like, and then slowly putting together little pieces of it, like learning that I had seen Bradley Cooper before, like in The Wedding Crashers, that I was about to see him in probably the worst movie he ever made. Did you ever see... um Oh gosh, and it even has it even has your favorite actor Sandra Bullock in it. Uh, I like Sandra Bullock. I like her. I don't know why I that that kind of uh, reaction online that I don't like. I was just saying I had a it was about speed. I said that she's the reason why we go see Speed. I I like I'm not going to take any grief on Sandra Bullock. I like Sandra Bullock a lot. Okay, fine. But was it was a movie called like There's Something About Steve? All about Steve. Oh, that All was on Steve. how that was on how did this get made? And yes, that movie is uh, truly bonkers. <laughs> yes, bonkers is the word for it. Um, but it was exciting. And so, you know, I'll admit, I was really nervous to rewatch this film because like I've seen, I saw it maybe two or three times since then. I saw the sequels, of course. I did not like the sequels at all. I think they got really bad and then they got just kind of boring in mm-hmm. the third one. And I 
in my memory of this film, think of it as being like super, 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 super bro-y, which rewatching it, it absolutely is. This is a really, really, really bro-y movie. And I wasn't sure how I would feel about it 12 years later. Um, Were you nervous about it for the same reason? Yeah, it's not a movie that I revisited. Um, And I think that comedies are really interesting because in rewatching this and and going to rewatch it, I was like, oh, I remember that experience going into that screening room and going crazy for it. Then I believe I went back and saw it again, you know, and I own, I, I own it on Apple TV. Like I own, own this film. Uh, but I don't even know if I watched it when I bought it. It may have just been like four ninety nine on iTunes. And I was like, Oh, well that, of course I need to add that to my digital collection. that doesn't exist that no one sees because, uh, in case an opportunity like this arises, I need to, uh, to strike. Um, and, uh, I didn't get that unrated cut, but I remember all those things. And I remember specifically uh, thinking how funny the ending was, which is always, I think if you can leave people laughing at the end of a movie, like that was, if I think back on this movie, like one of my favorite sequences was the reveal of the photos on the camera. Because it was like, here are 25 photo jokes that but not only like fill in the whole movie, uh, not that, you know, you need it to make it make sense, but it just kind of, they were filling in plot holes and being very funny. And you just, I remember leaving and everyone just taking in that ending. I mean, especially, you know, Zach getting the blowjob in the elevator, like that sequence, like I was like, oh, it was like, they still were like milking last from you as you walked out the door. And it was really like um, that. But again, to your point, I was going back on like, I hope this holds up. I wonder if this does hold up. I don't know. And then was very excited to see it and had a myriad of emotions throughout. Yeah, I mean, that it's gasp comedy, right? Like a lot of it. I think mm-hmm. half this movie is gasp comedy where you're like, oh, my God, they just did that. I cannot believe they did that. That kind of thrill where you're like, you feel like a naughty kid watching mm-hmm. this movie. All of the jokes about like the baby, like like Zach Galifianakis making the baby jack itself off on his lap i was like mm-hmm. oh my god i had never seen that scene in a movie i will probably never see that scene in a movie again and and being so startled at the moment i'm like i guess i really love that they're doing this do i really love that they're doing this i mean it's weird like i want to i was thinking as i was watching this about like the cycles that we have lived through in terms of shot comedy right because i feel like in our own lifetime we've lived through Three cycles, maybe, of shock comedy. Like, don't you feel like the culture kind of goes in waves where it's like, anything goes. We're being bonkers. Oh, my God. It's John Belushi doing whatever the hell he wants. And right. then it kind of, like, calms down. And then it, like, leapt back up again. It was like, blah, blah, blah. Anything goes. Everything's nuts. It's like strippers and people fucking pies. And then it, like, depths down. Well, and- I was thinking, like, yeah, like, let's even break it down. Like, I think it's the Animal House, Caddyshack level of, like, Drugs, sex, this is not your dad's comedy because this is like the yeah. 70s SNL, right? And then I don't know where it hits in the 80s. I think the 80s kind of like lives in this like weird bachelor party thing, like the Tom Hanks movie bachelor party, where yeah. it's like, okay, it's a little bit more on the like boob side, less about like the comedy. It was more like comedy with boobs. Yeah. Um, and then and then I, I, you can probably fill in some of these blanks, but I I... I think that there's two sides of it. You mentioned American Pie, but I would say that Farrelly Brothers is the shock comedy because American Pie at its core is like a sweet movie. Farrelly Brothers 
Like that was like Dick getting caught in zipper, uh, you know, Jim Carrey pissing in his face and me, myself and Irene, like like crazy, like, whoa, you know, that kind of level of stuff. Right. That's like, fair. And, and it was yeah. like a chaser to what, like the the Sandler comedies. I'm trying to think of like what was like the but Wayne's Sandler World kind of stuff, which I felt like was gentler. Yeah, I, I would say that Sandler was not shock comedy. Like, and that's the, yeah. and that's the weird thing. No, like, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, like the dip before the yeah. barely. I think Scary Movie, like you're right. I think Scary Movie maybe is bridging some of that gap. Like, and then I would say this is probably those are and then like The Hangover. I think those are like the three pillars. And now I think we're in a moment where we don't have comedies like this, right? At least I don't feel like we um, do. No, I would argue that Eric Andre and Jackass are movies that really push boundaries. Like Jackass to me, hands down, is the best experience I've ever had in a movie theater. I never laughed as hard. I cried. Jackass 1 blew my fucking mind. And one of the one of the things that I was most upset about in this pandemic was not being able to see Bad Trip in a movie theater because I believe that that would have had that same kind of like, oh, like those are movies that you want to be like, oh my God, looking at your friends, everyone's cringing and laughing. But Jackass and and uh, and Eric Andre definitely come from that same mold. And uh, Sausage Party was super dirty. Um, yeah, you know, but I feel Borat, like yeah. different than that. Like, because it's not just dirty, it's like transgressive. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I like this point of view. So, so it's not about like gross out as much as it is about like the attitude in which it is being served up. And I think one of the moments in this that really stuck out to me was how grossed out the guys are when Heather Graham is breastfeeding the baby. Right. They're like, Ooh, like you see them like recoil a little bit. And I was like, Oh, that's such a weird reaction on so many levels, but it, but it feels like it captures that kind of, that kind of energy. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think what was startling to me watching this was kind of going back in that mindset of male rage that I feel like this movie really celebrates. And I kind of, I want to like try to thread like several different needles at the same time if I can. Like one... I think The Hangover is really, really funny. And two, I'm very glad that The Hangover exists, if only to help us bolster the point that I think we've been trying to make with the this whole blockbuster series, which is take risks with casting, take risks with original stories. Like you can make money with original ideas. Like, please don't just be fighting over like having Harrison Ford and Will Smith be in every single movie. Like make new people stars. Like I'm so hungry for new movie stars. And it, I 
will treasure this movie for launching careers um, and getting like other films greenlit like that. And yet, like, I felt this third emotion watching it. And I'm going to try to articulate it. Like, it's that I feel like I keep thinking about it in terms of like the cool girl monologue and Gone Girl. Yeah. Do you remember like the cool, you know, like this is what a cool girl does. And you hang with the boys and you eat a lot by your size too, blah, 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 blah. Like that mo- that monologue has really stuck with me because I feel like it captures so much of my mindset at like being alive in this era. This movie really is angry towards women. And I didn't notice how angry it was okay. until watching it now. I would love and to it jump made on me this. Feel really kind of like, whoa, okay. I would love to jump on this because I feel like the one thing that was really interesting to me uh, was how aggressive and nasty and dismissive uh, Bradley Cooper's character is to Ed Helms. But Ed Helms's girlfriend is the mean one, the one that is disrespecting him. And I and that really jumped out to me in this movie. I was like, you are so much harsher to him than his girlfriend is uh, played by the great Rachel Harris. Uh, but it was an interesting like line, like, well, I can be that way to you, but she can't be that way to you. And there was, I was like, I want to see Ed Helms stand up to Bradley Cooper. Cause he's been pushing him around the entire time, like aggressively pushing him around the entire time. Yeah. Right. I mean, like what we get to know of Ed Helms's life, before they go on this like madcap adventure is like, yeah, he's been living with his girlfriend. They've been together three years. Um, She's already like cheated on him. And, you know, which is a funny joke of who, like how they remember it and how it is always retold. (laughs) Like that is a very funny joke. It really is actually like how it mutates. Like, is it more or less embarrassing if he was a cruise ship director versus like a a sailor, a waiter? Yeah. Great. Yeah. But the movie really makes the point that he's like incredibly henpecked and is kind of having to like revamp all of his opinions and what he thinks out loud in order to agree with her. Also, in that clip, you can hear some really dated language that that I I find regrettable. Besides, you know how I feel about that sort of thing. I know. I know. It's just boys and their bachelor parties. It's gross. You're right. It is gross. Not to mention it's pathetic. Mm -hmm. Those places are filthy. Yeah. And the worst part is that little girl grinding and dry humping the fucking stage up there. That's somebody's somebody's daughter up there. daughter up there. I was just going to say that. See, I just wish your friends were as mature as you. They are mature, actually. You just have to get to know them better. Paging Dr. Faggot. And I will say Ed Helms plays this really well. Like, he's such a convincing nerd. He's like one of the most convincing nerds I think I've ever seen in a film. Like, he really just shows up. I was not familiar with him from The Office at this point because I'm, I guess I'm one of those people who only watch The British Office. Maybe that makes me a jerk. I don't know. I find I'm like really allergic to John Krasinski. But not even uh, The Daily Show. No, I didn't have cable anymore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, Helms is great. I mean, I will say that hands down, this cast is perfectly cast. And I will say to everything that I know about Bradley Cooper And everything that I've seen of him since, this is a very interesting role for him because he is playing something that we don't see any bit of anymore in his his performances. Like he is like he is exactly what you're describing. He is the 
angriest of the guys, and he is the one who probably has the most um, harsh opinions. And I was really impressed with that. I was like, oh, wow, like what he's done to change this persona or not get caught as that guy, which is something that I think Vince Vaughn, since Swingers, has been caught in the trap of, right? Like, I'm going to be this type of guy. And Bradley Cooper really, uh, I think, did an amazing job at not being that type of guy or not being uh, typecast as that type of guy. Yeah, because he like he slides right into it really perfectly. Like, yeah. he's fantastic in this role. I believe that comedies represent a voice of a moment. And especially any comedy pushing anything, f- pushing the envelope is going to push uh, certain limits. It wasn't shot yesterday. It's sort of like that weird thing where people call for the cancellation of John Wayne, you know, years after. And 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 I think that we have to be cognizant and understand uh, that, you know, I don't think that jokes are always meant to age well. I think Seth Rogen said something like this too. There's a, a shelf life on a joke. Like, I don't think that you would go see a stand-up show in 2009 that would be like a stand-up show that you would see now. And I think that that's okay. I think that that's an evolution of comedy. I think it's whether or not, you know, people say that Eddie Murphy's Delirious is one of the funniest hours of comedy ever. It's an hour of comedy that no one would do now. It's an hour of comedy that Eddie Murphy himself is like, I I wouldn't do those jokes. And But yet at that moment, at that time... It is something that is a little bit more acceptable. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's like, oh, we'll just be easy on this. But I think it could be if we decide to jump in on this and go, well, when they said this, that actually is this. I think we could get mired down in this movie by picking apart what is uh, politically incorrect or what is just language that is kind of expired. Um, You know, I... You know, I think it's worthy of looking at as far as like, are we going to put this into space? Is this representative of something that we want people to see? But I I think it's okay, especially in a movie with with jokes, uh, to understand that it's not always going to not always going to age well. Yeah. Like watching this, I felt a weird sense of pride in comedy that we've finally grown past like the gay panic stuff that I think was at its mm-hmm. like, la- it was on its last legs, I think around yeah. here. I mean, one of the first and jokes like, is a gay joke yeah. in this movie, so like literally anything, in the voiceover. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I appreciate that like 11 years later, it feels so dated. I'm like, oh, wow. Good. Good for comedy that this feels so dated. Does that make sense? That kind of I, loop? I literally perked up because some of the dialogue like hurt my ears like ooh like whoa well like it's like 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 you know not truly but that idea like i haven't heard that set so casually like that in a way it was nice to feel like oh that isn't something that is acceptable anymore like we've grown past it i, I agree with you i think it it shows you know i think we're always looking like have we made have we made some strides forward and i think yeah we have i think we have made some strides forward hopefully i hope i hope so you know? too and i feel like in a way moments like this especially movies that i i still like even though it makes me uncomfortable some of the stuff in it in a way i think it's a good like emotional exercise to help extend empathy to the past as well because Everything that we think is funny will eventually be passed, you know, and I think it's so easy for people in the present to cast like 
aspersions on the movies of the past and be like, well, you're clearly all bad or you're clearly all terrible because of this. I like moments where I'm forced to recognize that in my lifetime, the things I think are okay or the things I'm like, even at the time I thought it was kind of lame. I didn't like those kind of jokes, but I wasn't like as cringing at them because I was Mm -hmm. just more, I was more, I think, numb to it um, because it was still so omnipresent. I like knowing that as we live our long lives, the things that we think and do will also become dated while we're still alive. And I think that that gives us a sense of, I don't know, for me, it feels like trying to extend more like empathy and grace and an awareness that like we all grow. Yeah. I also think what I really like about this movie is, and and this has been out there in a lot of different articles, this script was a bad script. I do believe that Jeremy Gerlich and uh, Todd did an extensive rewrite of it because I remember the script that I read did not have Mike Tyson in it or did not have the baby. Like some of the big set pieces yeah, were not in this movie. The wasn't in it. The police cruiser wasn't in it. None of that yeah. was in it. And Jeremy Gerlich has gone on uh, to do some really amazing stuff, uh, one of which is basically set up a whole studio. And I'm going to get my specifics wrong, so don't crucify me for this. But uh, it is like in upstate New York, they took over a high school and they make these movies there, movies where like Natalie Morales was able to make Plan B, you know, and uh, there's a handful of other ones. Like he's been producing these uh, these movies. There was one with Vince Vaughn uh, written by my friend Jordan Vandina. Like he's been making like cool little films. And, and Jeremy Gerlich, I think for a long time, he's actually directing the new Adam Sandler film right now, uh, the murder mystery sequel, is someone who was known as being like the primo script doctor. This also was the first movie that Todd didn't write with Scott Armstrong, um, who they did old school together and they did uh, Elf. And, you know, like Todd partnered up with somebody else to do a rewrite here. So I do believe that, um, you know, there may have been remnants of an old script in there and some old jokes. Cause like, I think Stu was supposed to be like a used car salesman. Think, you know, reason why Lindsay Lohan turned down the role of, um, of you know of the woman that Ed marries is because she's like this movie's gonna be a bomb. I don't I don't think it read on paper, but these actors, and I think a lot of times in comedies, actors elevate material. And when you have somebody like Zach in a movie who I think is so uh, incredibly funny and aware, he was able to avoid some pitfalls and uh, and traps of maybe some of the writing and do things that are I think are very. Zach-like. I mean, the things that you would see in Zach's stand-up act. So he was able to bring a very strong point of view and do things and and maybe make some alt choices. I I read one thing last night that there was a joke, um, that line where Zach said, uh, I didn't know they gave out rings at the Holocaust because he said it was his grandmother's Holocaust ring. Um, It's such a funny joke. And uh, it's such a great joke. And I think there was a joke that was in there before that was just a joke about like, having sex with like Ed Helms's mom, you know, or, or grandma or something like that, you know? So, um, so I think there is this idea of let's try to elevate the material and each performer kind of bring what they, they had to it. You know, I think Ed is incredibly funny as well, you know, who could just be like, okay, I'm not going to necessarily do this. I, you know, the song around the piano, that's Ed, that's something different that Ed is bringing to the movie. So 
I do think that there are probably remnants, there are probably things that are of its time, and then there are things that are elevated because of the casting of this movie across the board from even people like Rob Riggle and, and Brody Stevens uh, in the police precinct. You know, uh, Rachel Harris, also incredibly funny, and Jillian Vigman, like all these people bring something to it. And, and working with Todd, he is incredibly uh, collaborative as far as letting people trump the material on the page. I mean, when you're saying actors like subverting some of the lines that might have been in the script, I mean, that makes me think of something like the way when Zach Galifianakis' character is supposed to say um, retard, he like completely mispronounces it time and time again, like retard to make the joke something different than the actual word. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To make the joke on him and not like that, that the word itself is a punchline. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe we just call it out. Like, this is a movie that thinks that white guys are sweet and empathetic and misunderstood and deserve to, you know, act out their feelings and have friendships. I appreciate, like, the idea of, like, male friendship being a really important thing in this movie. But it is also a movie that's, like, women are nagging or women are literally sex workers or women are, like, a bride that you can just lie to a lot and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, I also found it to be a very weird catch-all that Bradley Cooper's character is like, oh, yeah, and I'm married and I have kids. And you're like, wait, what? Like, it, it's dropped in almost in the, like the last 20 minutes of the movie. We're like, what? Yeah. Or, or, or is it His earlier? It's really fascinating, right? Because I'm like, I don't buy him as a teacher. Yeah. Like, you're not a teacher. Why are you a teacher? Like, you act like an investment banker. Like, yeah. you have... There's anger in that character I find interesting. And in a way, like, there's a part of me that wants to try to, like, take it as a serious, deliberate choice and not as a mistake. Like, if I can take the Bradley character as a choice, here I am. I am a man with a beautiful wife. I'm a man with a nice kid. I'm a man who's a school teacher. And yet I am handsome. And yet I'm, like, simmering with repressed rage and I want to tear down the world. Like, that is interesting. And if you accept it at face value, I'm fascinated by what they're trying to say. Because then you're like, what are you so mad about? Well, uh, you know, I think I am actually wrong in saying that they drop in that he's married, I think, on the rooftop. So early on, but it's sh- I remember it being like even watching it last night because I don't remember that part of the movie going, oh, that's so crazy. But I think what they're trying to do is underline something else, which at this point in time and I still think to this day is a phenomenon, which is we're going to go to Vegas and we're not going to act like the people that we are. Like we are basically going to a place where there are no rules, no consequences. And, you know, this movie, I think if I'm going to go deep the way that you went deep with speed in the casket, I would say that this movie says, what if Vegas did come with consequences? Like what mm-hmm. if, you know, cause even Jeffrey Tambor says to, you know, uh, to the groom, Justin Bartha, he goes like, you know, Hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for herpes, you know, uh, alluding to the fact that like, you might go fuck somebody out there, but so be careful. You're like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's an energy of like, we're going to go. And that was the whole, like, there was that whole campaign. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like, yeah. we want you to come here and not be yourself. And like, in that, that moment on the rooftop where they're basically all in a circle and we basically, and we meet these people on their way to Vegas, essentially, we are agreeing, like, this is the moment we leave ourselves behind. And we are now becoming these other people. Yeah. I mean, and, there's this ancient yeah. storytelling tradition of that, you know, like 
not only is it what you do when you're like, when you go up Amish and you have Rumspringa, but like you go all the way back to you know, ancient Greek plays to like the idea of like Bacchus, you know, the whole idea of a Bacchanal or like Dionysian rites, like here's the gates of the city and inside the gates of the city, this is the way that we are supposed to behave. But once a year we go outside the gates and once we go outside the gates, we do everything that we wanted to do. We get drunk, we have as much sex as we want, we run around naked. And it's a way of, you know, Vegas is kind of like America's Bacchanal. It's a way of saying like, here in this city, we allow you to do everything that you can't do at home. Which right. is both saying like, yeah, have a taste of freedom, but it also establishes the rules of what normal life is supposed to be, right? Because if you can't do that where you're from, if you can only do that in Vegas, then it's like reasserting how you're supposed to behave. Oh, and by the way, I like got really curious. I was like, okay, okay, okay. What is the origin of this Vegas saying, you know? And it does mm -hmm. date back to 2003, like Vegas themselves came up with it as a marketing quote, but it's kind of like one of those play it again, Sam moments where the quote that they came up with is actually a little bit different. Their quote was what happens here stays here. Like, but it got mutated over the years. I don't know here. You can hear it here in this ad from 2006. Hey, Hey, that'll be uh, 75. It, it's usually $30. I went to Vegas last weekend. Pretty crazy. Although it seemed like you were having a much better time. So, 75? Yep. Nice job on the lawn today. We aim to please. I mean, what happens here stays here. Not as good, right? Not as good. Mm -hmm. Not as catchy. No, not as good. Uh, you know, in a um, way, like if this movie doesn't have intellectual property, the intellectual property is just that sentence, that that catchphrase. Well, I would argue that this movie actually even is a marketing tool for Vegas. Like, let's go there and have a hangover esque weekend, right? Like, it's it. There is something about it. Uh, but I will say this: if we're gonna go big with this idea, you know, in a way, this movie. And the things said and some of the performances and the attitudes expressed are the idea of this movie works outside of the normal film world. Like we can say and do whatever. We can have these preconceived notions. We can paint people in. It, it's almost like we're going to be free from the constraints of normal big budget movie. I mean, this is a bigger budget movie, but like the constraints of, you know, maybe someone like Will Ferrell wouldn't say this, but these guys will, they'll actually go there. They'll, you know, jack off a baby, you know, they will, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, like whatever the, the situation is. So I wonder if there's like a, there's a, an energy of a movie that's shot in Vegas about being crazy in Vegas that brings out like, let's push it all forward. It's yet another layer, you know, of, of how the, the location even influences the film. I mean, that's interesting. And now that I'm thinking about it, you know, a little deeper, the truth is all three of these guys kind of suck, right? In different ways. You know, yeah. like nobody wants to grow up and be Zach Galifianakis and nobody wants to grow up and be Ed Helms's character in this movie. And honestly, even though Phil looks like the Phil is in the Bradley Cooper character, looks like the role model cool guy of the three, like the one that you expect to be like, well, everybody wants to be like that guy. In the movie, we're told over and over again that he's like a hostile, dangerous idiot. And so when you get into that line where clearly this is not a case of like, you know, depiction equals endorsement, like right. these guys are 
not that I like love that they say like really retrograde stuff, but the movie is not being like saying retrograde stuff is awesome. Or I don't think it's doing that. But also, I don't think it's like not doing that either. Really. I don't think it's yeah. thinking about it that much. I think, no. I don't think it's thinking about it as much as I am. No, I mean, look, it's fun to look back on it and, and kind of capture what went on here. Because I, I can't also remember exactly in 2009. I think there was something about this movie in 2009 feeling very fresh and different. It felt and it so pushed, fresh. Yes. And I don't think it feels as fresh anymore. And I don't think that that's a problem. And, and my big thought on this movie is, I think there can be films that can be the perfect film for right now. And there are films that could be the perfect film for all time. We've talked about that with like the wizard of Oz, you know, it wasn't received when it came out, but now it's become, you know, this giant film. I think there are movies, especially comedies that fit in, in a mold, you know, for the time it, 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 uh, it articulates something, but I think that comedies have the most, um, you know, the shortest shelf life. These are not Twinkies, you know, and I think I don't think they should be Twinkies because I think the comedy should always be evolving. And, you know, we've talked a lot about why aren't there comedies on the list? Why aren't there comedies on the list? And I think it's hard because what is appealing across the board to so many people? And that's why we'll debate it in the upcoming episode. But Groundhog Day to me fits in that category. OK, this is a movie that is a very funny, good comedy that you could watch today. You could watch you know, 20 years from now, and it would still pretty much hold up. Yes, technology and cars made to be different, but the film actually works. Back to the Future, I think, has that same idea. Like there are, you know, but it's that, but a movie of the moment um, is a little bit harder to to have a, a, a shelf life on. And I think that's okay. Well, I think part of why we don't have that many comedies on the list is because comedies, historically, I feel like have not, uh, like really gone for it in terms of like cinematography and style, right? Well, yeah, this in is a great point tone. that you're going to bring and up. Like, yeah. And so I feel like when we're looking for like a hundred fantastic movies, we're really hopefully ideally finding something that's not just like well-performed, not just like great acted, but like looks amazing or really captures the tone. I actually, I was thinking about this. Like, I assume that it's a given that most comedies look bad, but honestly, I think it is just those 80s comedies that I kind of like watched on reruns when I was a kid. I just think those looked really bad because mm. when I think about the comedies of the 70s, they looked a lot better, to be honest. And like we've had kind of like mean, aggressive comedies in the 70s before that were more art films. And in this, I think like I was steeped in the world of looking at VHS covers of like ski school. And I just assumed most comedies were bad um, or right. bad looking. And so to see a movie with this much style, you know, this movie is incredibly stylish. It's beautifully filmed. And one of the things I kept thinking about watching it was actually thinking about Raising Arizona. You know, these shots that we get of the desert and of cars driving past and of like wasteland, it felt really Raising Arizona to me. And it felt really Barry, Barry Sonnenfeld. You know, we were talking about Barry earlier with Men in Black. And he was saying one of his secrets to directing a comedy was he doesn't tell like his cinematographers and his composer that he's making a comedy because he doesn't want them to put slide whistles in it. That was like mm -hmm. the kind of thing he yeah. said. And this is a movie that is a comedy directed like a drama, you know, well, and, and maybe yeah. I'd like to be in a world where we don't have to separate the two and that comedies are just known to be directed really good. But comedies with this kind of direction like tag and like like game night. I'm nuts about them. And and I really admire cinematography like this when it gets put into it. Well, I'm going to just say that I, th I think a lot of that is, you know, 
obviously the DP, but but more even, it, it's Todd. Uh, I think that Todd is a person who is incredibly style conscious and and kind of fell into comedy. I think he's a very funny guy, but he, you know, there are so many threads to follow here that it's not worth uncovering them all because I think we have to stay a little bit on topic. But, you know, Todd came to success in a very interesting way, which was a documentary about frat house culture that was then proven to be, uh, you know, created a little bit more in a lab. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, in a way, I think what Todd was doing was the advent of reality television. He took, you know, this interesting concept and then he goosed it. Um, and it was at this point in reality where I think right now, you know, reality TV is like the way that some people watch wrestling. Some people are like, what do you mean it's fake? It's not fake. It's real. It's blah, blah, blah. But it is. It is created for a narrative. I think Bravo is uh, brilliant at making you lean in. I think that The Bachelor is brilliant at doing that sort of stuff. But it is oh, manufactured. You don't want to get me started on F Boy Island. God, I mean, I really yeah, I know F Boy Island. It's so amazing. But there's this idea like reality television has morphed, has become a little bit more creator driven. I think he was at the forefront of that and took a little bit of the brunt of it because it was like, you're not, you're not Maisel. You didn't actually capture this. Like he did something that was, you know, and again, I, I know that there's a bigger story here and I'm kind of collapsing it, but you know, Todd, as you see, his career goes on, he continues to make more and more films that get away from the big broad comedies he was known for. I think Adam McKay also shares a similar thing, but I always think that Todd's look is very distinctive. Even working with him, uh, I saw him, I saw it in action and the way that it was lit and the way that, you know, it wasn't run and gun. And I've worked with a lot of other comedy directors who just want to capture the funniest thing. Well, let me Um, ask you about that though, because like this is a movie that has, you know, from what I've heard, like a fair amount of improvisation, like not yeah. like we improvise the whole thing, not like not like the fugitive, but some. Uh, and I was I would argue I, uh, probably a, a lot more than you even realize. OK, because then what I'm curious about is like, I guess I've always thought of comedies with a lot of impro- improvisation as almost necessarily being a little bit uglier to look at, like because they're not able to perfect the coverage or perfect the mm-hmm. shot. So how do you make a good looking comedy while also having improvising? How does he do well, that? To me, it's very simple. I think that the way that Todd is making this movie is the scripting is very tight. The improv, the dialogue is very loose. So it's not like you're setting up new shots. Um, you are in the coverage that you're in. And that is where the directing is. You know, you're not saying now let's create this new brand new sequence. Like we're going to start juggling in this scene, not prep for it. It's more like we're in this scene with the lighting, with the, with everything set. And then we can change the lines, you know, um, as you know, I did the league for seven years and that was a show that was improvised along the lines of curb, which is we have an outline and we improvise within it. Part of the problem with our show always, in my opinion, was we never really had time to make it look as good as it needed to look. We shot all of our episodes on the league in two and a half days, um, which is insane. Um, but because of that, we had to kind of shoot like a proscenium, which is, and uh, we had an amazing DP, but at a certain point when you have four cameras rolling, you got to light it in a way that you're hosing it down and you got to like 
stay out of each other's ways. I've worked with other uh, DPs, like the DP on Veep, who ki- and he also did The Good Place, who kind of figured out, okay, I can keep three cameras running and light it in a way that looks like only one or two cameras is running. And I think where Todd probably comes into this is, you know, on The League, it was comedy was king. It wasn't the shot is king. Um, and and I think many many comedy movies are like this. But I think here, Todd is definitely more about getting the great shots, the, the homage to Casino, the, you know, that opening sequence even is beautifully just framed, like the of Vegas with the Danzig song, or if it's Danzig, yeah. I may be wrong. Uh, but like well, you said, like... Elvez at first, like, and it's like a kind of a twisted version of yes, Elvis right, that's where it, the yes. lyrics are all wrong. Yes. And then like the Bellagio in slow motion, like it's, it's startlingly beautiful and, and, and it's, ominous, ominous as hell. Well, because it's like also different than we've, we've seen Vegas and all these other movies where it's like, you know, like we're partying yeah. in Vegas. It's like ding, 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 hearing all the, yeah. All, yeah, all the bells. It's like, so, yeah, yeah. It's like a, like a, almost a Vegas without people where it looks even more menacing. Yeah. So anyway, that's that to my to your question. That was a very long winded answer. I will just say that it's very easy to improvise dialogue when you have the good setups, because ultimately it's lines. It's not uh, you're not like going, well, now we'll jump up and down and we'll roll around on the floor here, you know, for the most part. Well, I think when you put his whole career like end to end, I find it to be remarkably consistent, you know, like that he starts by making a documentary about Gigi Allen, that like Mm -hmm. punk rocker who really took his stage performance to the limit. Uh, I had one of my ex-boyfriends dressed up like Gigi Allen for Halloween before I met him. Uh, But I have seen the photos of all the things he smeared on his body. as he. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty rough. But to do that, then the frat documentary then go into old school. Then, by the hear, way, you forgot about the uh, you forgot about the fish documentary. In oh there god, too. the fish documentary, um, the fish documentary, and then you know to get up to to Joker. I feel like what you have is a body of work that is all about explain exploring like the limits of you know good behavior or transgression. Honestly, I feel like transgression really is his word. Like, what are the cultures that we exist in, and where are they breaking rules, and what rules do we like to break as a society? You know, you become a fish head, even you sort of drop out of one type of society and join a different type of society. Like he's really consistent in that way. And I think when I stack all his movies end to end, the Joker feels like such a natural end point. It feels like he's been building to the Joker this whole time. I a hundred percent agree with you. I think that there's an energy of, I think there's a lot of like sex in Todd's movies too. Like this idea of, you know, what are the wrong things? I mean, Todd is in the hangover and, and I, again, another hilarious moment, which is like when the elevator door opens, like he's going down on his girlfriend in the elevator and he kind of pops up and there's like this awkward moment as they get into the elevator and then she goes to touch him and he kind of like pushes her. <laughs> off him which is like it's such a to me just like a funny character choice like so it's so bizarre mr creepy yeah like he's i think i think for a while was popping up in all of his movies um but regardless i think that there is um there's something about this idea of like what is you know road trip is like all right we're gonna you know I think Road Trip is starts out in a little bit more of a, a benign sense and old school's like, let's go back to our fraternity life. Starsky and Hutch, probably the outlier. Yeah. But School for Scoundrels is a movie where it's like, what if 
uh, if you look at that cast, they're not just all white faces, um, but it's all about like, what if we weren't wimps and we actually said and did the things that we wanted to do, you know, and maybe to a point Starsky and Hutch is this idea of back in the seventies, we didn't have to play by those rules, you know, and, and, you know, but, but it, it is all about rule breaking, you know, um, you know, and creating a different moment, you know, like what, what are we doing here? Like, how are we breaking the system? Even war dogs, which I don't think people, many people saw uh, myself. Oh yeah. I saw war dogs. I forgot. I saw war dogs. Was about like kind of getting your own, you know, uh, you know, and and how do you, this is what the government says is kind of okay. Right. Like, why is this okay? Kind of like taking crazy ideas to like a limit and figuring out why this is a broken system. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that makes his films really interesting as a body of work, you know, and of them, The Hangover is probably my favorite, to be honest. You know, like, I think that there, this whole film feels to me like, like waking up and not getting to brush your teeth. Like this film feels legitimately like dirty and terrifying in a way that I appreciate feeling uncomfortable. I mean, this movie in a kind of operates like a horror film. I mean, me. well, like, you it know, is a horror film in so many ways. Well, I think that that's why this movie works is this movie works because it's not just a straight up comedy. It's a stylistic film that is uh, a whodunit, even though there is no done. You know, uh, there's a sort of like they're, they're trying to figure out this mystery. But I want to say one thing about the, the horror, the horror idea is you have somebody like Ed Helms who is really missing that tooth. You know, so he pulls it out. So when you said like, well, how much is improvised? Well, there is something that would never have been in any other version of that movie. But you have this character walking around with a gaping hole in his mouth, you know, and that's it. And he is one of your, you know, your leads of a movie. And even just looking at that the first time you see it and even in the end when he's pulling it out with the pliers, uh, it's like, oh, oh, it's like it's just you're not used to seeing that on the big screen like that kind of that. As a lead, you know, maybe yeah. as, you know, in like in National Lampoon Vacation, you know, you could see Cousin Eddie being a little bit weirder. But that is a pretty aggressive look. Well, yeah. It's and bitty, the story behind yeah. it, that he did it because Zach Galifianakis didn't think he could do it. And this idea of like what happens when a group of men get together, like how yeah. do they egg each other on to become more destructive? And and what is funny, because the one thing I do think that is really funny is asses. Like, there's a lot of asses in this movie, a lot of male asses. Like, in my recollection, tell me if I'm wrong, there isn't a lot of female nudity in this film. Maybe more in the in the post, you know, in the credits than in the actual film. Yeah, there's uh, but really it, not. No, it's not yeah. like, hey, titties. No, yeah. it, which is surprising, you know. And, and, and even the way that, like, Heather Graham is, when she is naked in the movie, she's breastfeeding, so it's not even done in a... Um, a salacious way in a way it's actually done and this is what I'm I wrestle with it's done in a way where it's being filmed in a way that is not gross but the men react to it in a way that it is gross yeah so, so that is them more than yeah. her because like her character is really lovely I actually think Heather Graham does a great job in this movie like you could say that it's maybe too lovely that she's like an idealized like hooker with a heart of gold mm-hmm. that old maxim but she, I think, has a lot of really sweet heart in this film. And she's like very together. She's like helping them with like the gambling. She seems to understand that everything isn't exactly what he planned. And like, it's interesting that she seems to know a different 
Ed Helms than any of the other guys know I because have, she was uh, sober when he was drunk. And she's like, when she sees him for the first time and she's like, oh, you're so quiet. Like, it's interesting right. that she knows a version of him that nobody else, including us to that point in the movie, has known. I will say a couple of things about this. First of all, you mentioned the gambling scene. I want to talk about the gambling scene, which is so beautifully shot. Again, another really great shot scene and an homage to Rain Man uh, with the actual actress from Rain Man doing the dealer work, uh, which I thought was a fun little Easter egg in there. Uh, same actor. But I do have a problem with that as a a plot point. Like, they fell in love, these two people, he does not remember her, but yet he wants to continue to be with her. But there's nothing in the movie, truly, besides that one moment on the ground when she falls off the chair to distract, get Alan away, uh, that they have this like moment of connection. It's a, it's a weird... That's, I mean, look, this is movies, this is comedy movies 101, but there is like something about it where she's like, she's so nice, so of course he's going to like her, but like, what does she even know of him? What does he even know of her? She's just pretty, but maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a, a vestige of an old time too. You know, it's like, there's something like, there's a little bit of a cheat there plot wise. And, and again, yeah. I'm not going to go I mean, picking apart really all. it's really unfair to like, the way they stack like, Heather Graham, like perfect, sweet, lovely, adores him as he is against like his like mean, 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 like She's, girlfriend. Yeah. It doesn't feel totally fair. I mean, I will say I like Heather Graham with him better than I like the girlfriend they give him in the second movie or his fiance to be who just feels like a completely gorgeous non-entity, you know? Just yeah. I forgot there. about her. Yeah. Well, I don't remember like their excuse for why that happens, why they swatch, slip them out. But by like, the way. I mean, I'm sure Heather Graham probably didn't want to come back to do something that was going to be a thankless part or, or, you know, like the, the James Conn, I'm really now spinning, but the James Conn thing of like, well, pay me then pay me enough money to yeah. come back. And, you know, there's those things where those people sometimes get, uh, you know, they, they just get walked out of their own part. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, everybody got super paid though, to like do the sequel. Like that's what the numbers on this, I find fascinating. You know, that when Warner brothers greenlit this movie with these actors, you know, and they weren't calling them stars at the time. They like were like, you have to slosh this budget. I don't think we're going to like spend like the 40 million, like mid 40 that they meant to spend on it. Like they yeah. make him take like 10 million, I think, out of the budget because he didn't right. pass anybody they considered famous. Um, and they also were like, can you, we have to slash your directing fee too. Like he was supposed to make, I think, $6.5 million for directing this movie. And they're like, you're going to have to cut that in half because you didn't get stars. Um and instead of that, what I heard that Todd Phillips negotiated with his agent was like, fine, don't pay me anything, but give me a 16% stake in the movie. Yeah. And that wound up making him $70 million. And because they didn't believe that this cast was like worth much, they didn't sign them to a sequel contract like before. Right. So when it was such a hit, they're like, oh man. And then all of them got like major pay bumps, like huge, huge, oh, huge, huge yeah. pay bumps. Like they made bank because they were not believed in. They made bank. I don't think that they want to, you know, I, I think that there was an uh, their energy too. like, do we need to go back and do this? And, you know, at a certain point, the money takes over and you go, all right, let's just do this. But, you know, it's so hard. I think it's so hard to do a sequel to a premise film because again, like why can't Heather Graham be in it? Because he's already grown. Like we need to give him somebody else. Like, or you know, like there's, it's hard. I mean, and well, let's talk about your Hangover 2 because I still want to talk about Hangover 1, but I but uh, I want to hear why you think Hangover 2, what they should have done. Well, let's do it because, okay, it relates to Hangover 1. Like my favorite undercurrent in all of Hangover 1 is how much Zach Galifianakis hero worships Bradley Cooper. 
like mm-hmm. completely hero worships him. Like some of the stuff you notice Zach doing, like even in the back of the scene is like standing how Bradley is standing or moving his hands, how Brad- Bradley is moving, like building up this whole thing the whole time that like he wants to be this guy. He wants mm-hmm. to like, he wants to be everything that this man is. And that this weekend becomes like the most important weekend of his entire life. You know, he's been like a really lonely guy up until this point. Um, And so, you know, you have that revelation here where he like says, oh yeah, I drugged the Jägermeister. Guys, there's something I need to tell you. Last night on the roof, before we went out, I slipped something in our Jägermeister. What? I'm sorry, I fudged up, guys. You drugged us? Oh, I, I didn't drug you. I was, I was told it was ecstasy. Who told you it was ecstasy? The guy I bought it from at the liquor store. Why would you give us ecstasy? Because I want everybody to have a good time, and I knew you guys wouldn't take it. It's just one hit each. I used to do three hits a night. But it wasn't ecstasy, Alan. It was roofies. You think I knew that, Stu? The guy I bought it from seemed like he was a real straight shooter. I'm sorry. You mean the drug dealer at the liquor store wasn't a good guy? Let's just calm down. You fucking calm down. He drugged us. I lost the tooth. I married a whore. How dare you? She's a nice lady. And so what I thought the second movie would be about that would tie all of this together in a way that would be really interesting was if you realized that all of this was happening again because basically Zach Galifianakis is like, a jigsaw like saw figure at the center. I remember thinking the same thing. Yes. Trying to recapture the best weekend of his life. Trying to be like, I want this. I've I've never been more happy than when I was like running around with my friends worried that we were all going to die. And so if you turned him into the villain or kind of the orchestrator of the whole piece in the, in the second one, beautiful, beautiful. That's all you had to do. And I think you would have, come up with enough juice to get that whole movie across the finish line easily. I, you know, interesting. I can't speak to that movie as much. You know, I think it's also, to me, a movie that's incredibly flawed because it's doubling down on the crazy. And that's not what made the movie great to me. Like, for example, um, you know, Ken Jeong who this is his breakout role. Like this is like, we now we get Ken Jong because of this movie. Like another actor could have done this part and not have been as successful as Ken Jong because Ken Jong is bringing so much of himself there so much. So he's the reason why his character, Mr. Chow is naked. He decided he was going to do that. And it was a last minute thought. And they kind of threw a nudity waiver in front of him just in case he changed his mind. And he did that. And it's a really funny reveal. I remember like, whoa, like it's so crazy. And it just, it, it heightens so wonderfully. And in the second movie, like you basically spend, at least what seems to me like an eternity on this man's like, you know, penis and pubic hair. You know, I don't know. It's like, it really is embracing like, like, okay, well, what's worse than Vegas? Uh, Thailand and Bangkok. And it just, I don't know. It just felt like the charm of the shock value just became actual shock value. And it didn't become like funnier. It just became more gross. If that yeah. makes sense. You know, I, I mean, again, I, I haven't seen it. It was just like really, really sad. I don't even know if that's yeah. true. But in my memory, Did they go the third, back to Vegas like, in the third one. They go to Mexico. Don't they go to Mexico? It's just like, it's really a dirge. It was like the dirge of the wolf pack. 
Yeah. And, and like it, you almost felt like you wanted to see them die. Like that's what yeah. I remember like in Hangover Series. Like, like I they... wanted them to die. I was like, let them all die. And I feel like there was an energy from all the characters in it, uh, where they're like like there is that energy there too, you know. Um yeah, so okay, now they go back to Vegas, they're kidnapped. Mr. Chow's back. Like I'm just looking at it. Um, it's just, you know, and they, and they they go to Mexico for a moment, and Heather Graham is back in that one. Oh, she is. Yep. God, I don't remember a thing about it. <laughs> and Mike Epps, who by the way is billed Mike Epps billed like the third or fourth in this film, and I was like, Mike Epps is in this. I totally forgot. Um, and. And that was interesting just to show you, like, where the status was at that point in the film, too. But doesn't that feel, I mean, almost like a betrayal of what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, that, like, this movie gave itself the freedom to end with an end credits montage of, like, here's all the stuff that we didn't even bother to tell you about. Like, here's what happened. We didn't even have to get into it. We don't have to fill in all of the plot holes of the night. We'll just give you these rapid fire pictures. And then by the end, they're like, we must tie it all together into a universe. It must be like, you know, right. end game. Like, how did it all fit? And it's like, we didn't care. And you kind of prove that we didn't have to care. As we're talking about it now, I remember. And and again, what I love about this show is the my lack of research, um, which is uh, because I never know what we're going to talk about exactly. So I will just say this. I believe it's a take on Treasure of Sierra Madre. Hangover oh, three because they go to find Mr. Chow's gold. Oh, didn't they do that in City Slickers too? Uh, well, that Legend of Curly's Gold, yeah, another movie that didn't need a sequel. <laughs> like that's the other, like, like that's the other thing too. Like I, I, I'm a big believer in like, I think that is City Slickers PG Hangover. No, no. City Slickers is... Uh, it's not. It's like, hey, let's go discover mm, who we really are. Yeah, but that's a little bit more... I actually think that that movie actually has a lot more emotional... Re- that's more like parenthood. That's in the, the Babalu Mandel kind of like that world of like, we want to be better. Not like we want to f- fucking get drunk and get wild. It's like, I delivered a baby calf and now I can be a better father. Like, it, like the, the characters are a little bit more like pure if that makes sense it, it, it is like it's like i'm bored with my job i i i'm not interesting anymore i'm not I, i've lost my spark and the wife is like go get your spark back you know like that kind of a thing it's not like it's not, i don't know don't you dare get your spark back you've got to yeah, be here sitting yeah. by my side because i'm a mean old nasty nag but yeah like i appreciate that when they find justin bartha uh, on top of Caesar's hotel, like he looks sunburned, dehydrated, traumatized that, yes, this is a movie where there actually are consequences for things, you know, where where like their friend is legitimately fucked up. And like, yes, they get him to his wedding, but they have really like he doesn't he's not just like you kidders. Oh, boy. Sure. Right. was Boring up here. Like he he looks awful. Yes. And and. I mean, yeah, like there was actually at the time um, a writer named Gabriel Lipson, who was at MTV, like called the Vegas police. And he was like, can I ask you what would happen if people actually did steal like a cop car? And the cop um, of Vegas was like, that is a minimum one year in prison felony, like absolutely minimum. <laughs> well, um, no, they got to got tased in front of the in front of the room. Yeah. And actually, like, I mean, I've heard that story that Todd Phillips wanted to tase them for real. 
that he Didn't was. Didn't they get tased for real? I don't think so. I think eventually the lawyer stepped in, but like he was okay. apparently showing them videos on YouTube of people getting tased for real and being like, it's fine. See, just let me tase you for real. And Zach Galifianakis was like, no. That makes sense to me <laughs> that Zach would not get tased. Um, <laughs> but you know. But um, he's frightening though, isn't he? And that kid that he's like, that tases him. I love that kid. I think that kid has great reactions just glaring at him. And that. It is a moment where the joke is the surprise that Zach doesn't just fall down, go boom. You know, like I'm not a fan of fall down, go boom, that he like staggers to him in a way that's even more terrifying and menacing and funny than it would be than than what you're expecting. And look, I love Rob Riggle. Rob Riggle is my buddy. And that sequence is amazingly, uh, you know, he brings so much. I mean, again, we're talking about improv and what people are bringing to things. Like this is like that scene is, you can see that scene in so many different ways, right? You could see that scene a little bit more intimidating. You could see that scene, um, you know, like there's so much going on there that elevates that scene too. Yes, you're getting this funny thing of them being tased, but all the comedy around it is is really good. I was going to say before, I think the problem I have with comedy movies and sequels in general, this is not a hard and fast rule, is you you close the loop. It's sort of like the reason why sitcoms work is because you never close the loop. You know, for the most part, most sitcoms uh, that, you know, or, you know, in the old model, it's like, you're always back to square one again. Like you don't want to necessarily fall in love. You don't want to, you know, get, you want to change the situation. You want to kind of just retread these characters and use them over and over and over again. But when you have a movie that needs to arc and you end the characters with a definitive ending, they've grown, they've changed, they've done something. It's like Shit's Creek, perfect example of this. Like, yes, the characters are growing throughout the series, but not right away. And at the end, you feel like, okay, they, I feel good enough to let these characters go. If you were to put them back in a hotel, you lose the fun because you, we've now, we've, we've agreed that we've let them go. Like, you know, we've agreed that, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's hard to re like, it's hard to peel back the emotional attachment that you have to, I think, characters that you like. Like, it's like, I don't want to see Step Brothers 2 only because I feel like, I feel like they've reached a thing. And one of the funny things about Step Brothers is that they're at each other's, they're at each other's, uh, you know, they're at odds with each other. And they come together, they work really well together. And then the movie ends. It's hard to, you know, I don't want to see Superbad 2. I, I, I want, I, that's the journey. Like, and that's what I think is unfortunately the problem with this movie. Like, take these three actors and take Todd Phelps and make another movie, but don't have to force them into the same thing and then have to, like, rip up their characters to create another thing. Like, how many how many adventures can they go on where they're, you know, growing as people? It's like we already were... T- you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense, or am I talking in a circle there? No, it does. Like, what I would want to happen after a successful comedy is another successful comedy that's completely different, you know? The Preston Sturges model. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I'd want to be like, oh, this worked. Why don't we do other more things that make everybody gasp? But then The Hangover 2 makes more money than Hangover 1. So then everybody's like, well, clearly we should just be making sequels. Go back out. Go back yeah. out. Do it again. Because what I liked at, as this movie kind of winds to a close is that sense of, like, loss on behalf of, you know, crazy pants like Zach Galifianakis that this isn't going to happen again. You think right. because of how it ends that he's like, they're driving to go see Mr. Chow. They've gotten all of his money to pay him off. They're in the backseat and he's singing that song that they're like best friends now. Back. We are back. 
We are getting Doug back! And we're the three best friends that anybody could have. We're the three best friends that anyone could have. We're the three best friends that anyone can have. And we'll never, ever, 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 ever leave each other. We're the best three friends that anybody could have. I mean, and I find that scene so heartbreaking. And I would love it if it if the movie had just ended there or done the fucked up Jigsaw sequel. Because, like, they're not even singing along. They're not like... Yeah, we right. did it, buddy. Like there is a there is a lack of closure there that's really sad and pathetic. And I love that about it because it is a, an example of like when this film does callous correctly, you know, and it, and right. it feels there. Well, it feels to, there to me. That. I think, you know, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but I think we can maybe even drill down harder and say Todd Phillips is a dark guy. And the reason why I think The Hangover works or feels a little bit more dangerous is because of that dark energy coming in. And I think there are parts of this that, you know, I think he's okay with making you feel like he can live in that world where you maybe want the characters to kill themselves in Hangover 3. Like, you're okay yeah. with it. Because yeah, he's like, kind I've of, watched you guys forever. You can die. Like, he, he put yeah. me to that mindset. And and I think that, that the problem with the sequels is that you you can't, you can't go there. You can't do that. You can't do it to a big movie like this. And so you start to lose some of that artistic freedom. You know, I'm definitely feeling with, with this movie, and we've, we've talked a lot about all these things. I think that, you know, it is a film that is incredibly unique in the sense that it captures the energy of a drama with, you know, and I think most best comedies do this. Like, it's the the story is solid, and the comedy is you, why you lean in more. I think, you know, I think that, you know, I think it's always, it's, you got to have a good story there. You just can't rely on just jokes and jokes and jokes. There's a real reality with real consequences, even though it's loose and you're, like you said, you're not going to go to jail for a year with the cop car and you're, and you're not going to worry that you shot the guy at the, uh, you know, the wedding chapel and all that sort of stuff. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. By the way, we haven't even talked about the Mike Tyson of it all, which we should. Um, like, A, I've interviewed Mike Tyson before. Um, he did a documentary about boxing, about the history of boxing in America. That's like really, really, really interesting. And he is one of the more interesting interviews we've ever, I've ever done. I remember he used the word skullduggery. Like, I've really, I really was interested to like spend some time inside of his brain. Um, and... Because he sings in this movie, I, you know, I had to do the thing where I'm like, all right, he's a terrible singer when we see him, like, playing the piano. Mike Tyson? Shows. My 
favorite part coming up right now. I want to ask Paul, do you think he is a better singer than that or a worse singer than that in real life? Same. I don't think Same. he was trying to be a bad singer in this movie. Oh, he's actually a little bit better. Listen to him sing The Girl from Ipanema on Brazilian TV. One, two, three, four. Tall and tan and young and lovely. The girl from Ipanema goes walking. And when she passes, each one she passes go. Ah. Also, by the way, somebody once asked him what was up with the fact that he actually did own seven tigers in real life. And this is sort of the explanation that he gave. I'm in prison. I'm talking to my car dealer at the time. And he has a he has some. cars that belong to a friend of mine that's both a friend of ours, and he's discussing if he doesn't pay for these cars, I'm going to sell these cars to somebody and get some horses and stuff. I said, what, you can get horses and trade horses in for cars? Because I had a lot of cars. I said, I'll probably get some horses, too. And he said, yeah, man, you can get, you get cougars, lions, tigers. I know this guy got excited. I said, you do? Can you get me some tigers? He said, yeah. And the guy what? told me, and the guy said, man, imagine how cool that'd be you'd be, because I had a bunch of fancy cars. Imagine that man, you'd be in an Aston Martin or a Ferrari, and you have a tiger right now. Next to you, man. That would be so awesome. And I'm a young guy. I'm, a I'm saying to myself, wow, that would be cool, right? I mean, yeah, get me some cubs, man. How many tigers do you want to own, Paul? Um, zero. Zero. I'm a, you know, come on, people. I don't fuck with that shit. Keep tigers where they belong, out in the wild. Don't cage them up. Do your thing. Don't adopt coyotes. We don't, are not meant to control nature. I like that Mike Tyson had the pigeons. I watched that documentary. Do more pigeons. Do more pigeons, less tigers. Were there people, I mean, this movie seems to be beloved. You got to see it so early. Were there people out there that didn't like this movie, that didn't like love it? I felt like it was, it was the, the second coming. I mean, when this movie came out. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were. And the one thing I thought was interesting about the reviews that did not like this film is the main thing they had in common was that they didn't like that the movie didn't star people they knew. Like one one reviewer wrote, like, it does not help that the central cast is almost entirely forgettable from the smug lounge lizardry of Badly Cooper to the boisterous Jack Black light of Zach Galifianakis. A genuine star, Vaughn, Rudd, either Wilson brother would have made these characters likable Mm. rather than simply pitiful and tiring. And I think that that's a bit of a misreading. Like, I think that you're right. Todd Phillips doesn't want these characters to be that likable. He likes the pitifulness of Zach Galifianakis. But also the 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 thing that is so cool about it is when you put in somebody that you know, there's a comfort level to them. Like there is there is like, oh, I know Will, you know, I know Will is going to, you know, Will Ferrell will take care of me in this movie. Yeah. But when you don't know what these characters are, you don't it's new and it's exciting. And that's what we should be. That's what we should be going through. We shouldn't like it's the the biggest you know, the biggest dream is that we there. it's not predictable. We don't know who's going to die. You know, so when we see a movie where a main character has an early exit, we're like, oh, my God, like, it, it, like you know, or something like that. Like what I love about this movie is we we don't know what to expect. And so that makes people uncomfortable. And I love that. I agree. I actually picked a longer review that doubles down even more on this. Um, it is from Richard Corliss of Time. 
You want to make a comedy about guys who learn the true meaning of bromance on a horrible weekend in Vegas, but you can't spend a lot of money on talent? Who do you cast? The leading role of Phil, the smart, the smart, energetic audience surrogate, might have suited Jim Carrey or Vince Vaughn. So go with Bradley Cooper. I, I'm fascinated by that reading that like Phil is the guy that Richard Corliss is like, that's the audience surrogate. He's the one that we like. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Carell would have been perfect for Stu, the amiable henpecked dentist. But Ed Helms, Carell's cohort on The Daily Show and The Office, costs so much less. Now for Alan, the roly-poly cute guy with a surface of energy and a sociopathic streak. Can't afford Jack Black, so give stand-up comic Zach Galifianakis a chance. Okay, we got ourselves a movie. Uh, no. Unless your definition of pure perversity includes the portrayal of a convicted pedophile who's given weekend custody of a baby. Or if your idea of the decade's funniest movie would contain a scene where our heroes get repeatedly tasered before a class of cheering children. You'll also need an an indulgence for racial, parenthetical Asian, and sexual, parenthetical gay, stereotyping, the sight of inappropriate gentlemen with their pants off, and well, all right, that last bit is always funny. The rest is about as easy to endure as a real hangover. And then it says that it, he like, then the review starts to really get into it, into the world of romance films, which there are a lot of at this point. It says it applies all the numbingly familiar tropes of the bromance comedy that have made this flourishing subgenre as rigid in, in its conventions as kabuki theater. Whether the guys in bromances are dating each other, like I love you, man, going to bed with each other, super bad, or marrying each other, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. The common thread is the assumption by men of the traditional movie male and female roles. The women of The Hangover, with the fleeting exception of Heather Graham, who plays a hooker with a baby, are creatures either to ignore or flee from. Phil's wife makes no impression. Doug's bride-to-be is briefly is a briefly seen figure of increasing anxiety. And Stu's longtime girlfriend is a shrew from Shrewsville. She's so stridently castrating that Stu's climactic display of spine, kind of like the chestbuster scene from Alien Only Dorsal, is a given from the get-go. Whatever the critics say about this movie, it is a bromance so primitive that it is practically bro-magnon. Well, there you go. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about a couple things here and just say, uh, as we're continuing to think about, does this go to space? Um, and I want to address something that they said there as well. When this movie comes out, we are in an era of peak Adam McKay movies, right? Step Brothers comes out the year before this. Uh, Judd Apatow is doing Sarah Marshall, which I think is one of the best, uh, you know. Yeah, I uh, like Sarah Marshall. You know, and that's not, and, and just to be clear, I want to make sure I credit my right directors. That is not a uh, Apatow movie. It was just a produced by Apatow movie. That's a Stoller film. Um, you still are have you have this great you know Ben Stiller Tropic Thunder, which is one of my all time faves. So it's not like oh this came out of a time where comedies were not working. Comedies were working. This just, I think, captured a different style of comedy than had been out there. Um, And it sort of feels like it worked in that way uh, that it just, it captured something. I don't know what about it is different, you know, uh, but it, it just maybe said the things that people hadn't been saying or been afraid to say, not that, that these are good things, but they, you know, but they are, it definitely had more of a raw edge to it. But I will say it is worth noting that for me, what is a problem with this movie is those stereotypes. And and as much as we talked about the filmmaker being aware of the, like a woman breastfeeding not being 
a disgusting thing our characters are not. And that seems to be one of the only times truly where we're commenting on stuff. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit right with me. I don't love... I don't love the portrayal of, you know, I think there's a, a lot of racial insensitivity across the board. And I think, and and there's one thing to be done by someone who is making that choice to do it. And there's another thing to be done by someone who is a, uh, a doing a caricature and not having that background. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that is sometimes problematic when you are pushing forward very aggressive, stereotypical things, and you are not that thing. Um, and so there is, there is, I have issues with that. I also feel like, uh, I also feel like the, the treatment of women is just a little bit like, and I'm, I'm not, it's just a little base. It's base and it's, it, it makes them not fun. And, uh, and you have amazing women in this movie uh, I'll just say like Jillian Vigman and Rachel Harris, who are incredibly funny performers who are forced into these roles where they don't really get to do uh, much of anything. Um, and that's a shame. And, you know, and and pretty much all the characters they interact with are male characters, with the exception of Heather Graham. Um, you know, so there is something about it where I'm like, I don't know if this is the most representative comedy. If we're going to put like a comedy on the list, put a comedy into space while this was a giant hit and a one of those movies that there's like a real mover and shaker, like the hangover, the hangover. It to me feels like the wear and tear on this movie is great for then and maybe not good for now. Yeah, it's like I don't want to throw the hangover under the bus because I know I loved this movie a lot at the time and watching it again. I did crack up constantly about this film. And and I would like to have more movies do a lot of what this movie does. You know, I really, 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 really like that they, you know, took a jump on, on this like cast and that they gave us new movie stars and that they did something daring. And I feel like maybe I'm in a mood right now where I feel like, I, do you feel like the rumblings of the next wave of transgressive comedy coming? Like, I feel... I'm nervous nope. about you don't like I, nope. I I feel like I feel like we're maybe 18 months off. I don't know if I'm right or wrong on that, but like I'm nervous about having to live through another future comedy world that feels so like boo boo boob girls are skanks as like the early 2000s did. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I don't I think it's like ever going to happen. I'm worried. I'll tell you why. I'm worried. It will. Because I'll tell you why. Because no one's going to the movies anymore. No one's going to see comedies anymore. And they're not making comedies like this. And they're not going to make comedies like this. They're going to, this is going to be on streamers. And everything you're going to get now is going to be very niche, very specific. So if they're going to make a transgressive comedy, you're never going to see it. It's never going to cross over. It's going to be right to a baseline. It's going to be following an algorithm. Like you like this person, you like that person. That movie's for you. No. Uh, and that and, makes me I mean, sad though too, as much as because I kind of like the big cultural moments. I mean, I like that Madame Tussauds in Las Vegas has a hangover bar where you can like pose with the cop car and take a picture with Zach Galifianakis. And yes, it is ridiculous, like branding synergy. And yes, it, it's like so insane to go to Vegas and all you see are like t-shirts of like you get to be Zach Galifianakis with a baby on your chest, like walking around. I mean, I remember, I remember literally texting with Zach about something very serious um, about a mutual friend in Vegas because we were there shooting the league. And as I was texting with him, uh, two people walked by with like shirts 
of his character with the baby on it. Like they're like, they're just like printed shirts. And I was like, this is fucking surreal. Like this, the hangover has become like, this is like, it is, you know, it is a, they are part now of the culture of Vegas. Like they are this other thing. Um, yeah. They really are. They really are. You know, they, yeah, I think like Zach Galifianakis has become like the saint of Vegas, like the patron saint. And he's saint. so like, you light not a candle like to that. Him and yes. you're like, please don't let me die this weekend. I mean, it's, he's not that guy, but, uh, but I mean, he is that guy. He's, he is hilariously funny. I mean, like, actually, I think it, like in many respects, like his career is one of the most interesting because he does what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, when he wants to do it. And uh, and could have probably taken a very different path, probably based on what was presented to him and is, I think, only made things that he ultimately feels that feels true to what he wants to do for the most part. Yeah, I can um, imagine he got a lot of now your character gets hit by a car scripts. Imagine yeah. he got nothing, but now your character gets hit by a car scripts. And I don't mean to like I'm not trying to disregard your thought experiment. Like, will we get back to transgressive films? I just think comedy is in trouble. I think I think that comedy as a mainstream thing does not work anymore. And I think it works on Netflix and I think it works in smaller venues. And as movie theaters right now are struggling, you have yet to see these movies pop through and where they pop through a movie like pop star, you know, uh, MacGruber. And then these are definitely years and years apart. Yeah, They're they hilarious after movies. The fact, you know? After the fact. Yeah. And, 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 and we're seeing this thing. People don't take a risk on the unfamiliar. Like if, there was a Step Brothers too. Yes, it would be. But like, if you look at like the comedies that have come out in the theater, like maybe Jackass Two will bring us all back, or Jackass Four, whatever the hell it is now, uh, will bring us back to the theater. Um, but you know, you know, if you look at like the slate of comedies, let's say like in 2019, because that's probably the movies were still kind of coming out in in regularity. You know, you got a movie like Good Boys, which I thought was amazing. That I kind of like Good Boys. I love Good Boys, but it kind of like that was the one. That was the one that kind of like made $70 million, but the rest, I mean, I'm going to read you some of these names. You're going to be like, all right, so, you know, Murder Mystery, that was on Netflix. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's not, that's not that. The Hustle, the Rebel Wilson, uh, Anne the Hathaway movie. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, then it's like the Guy Ritchie movie, The Gentleman. Then you talk about a movie like Long Shot, which I love. Yes, I'm in Long Shot, but not really prominently in any way. Long Shot's a great comedy movie that no one saw and then everyone saw afterwards because it's a fucking brilliant rom-com um and just really really good and then you see like a movie Do like you Stuber. Feel anecdotally like people are discovering long shot now oh god yeah really i mean That's it's great. like oh oh yeah i mean once that movie went on like hbo or whatever it went on like it was a night and day difference really? i mean i've seen it just through june's eyes yeah i mean i love oh, it that. like oh like giant giant yeah. giant giant so i guess what i'm saying is like but even like long shot is I think like Seth Rogen is not only one of the most bankable stars, but is actually really gives a shit about making really good comedies. And when you have him at the forefront, the guy who never loses money on these movies and Charlize in a movie and it, it tanks and maybe it was the way it was released, but it had nothing to do with the quality of the movie. It just shows you like comedies have a hard time living in this ecosystem next to, and this is where I'm going to get on your side, the, the Marvel films, the, the big budget movies that I love so much too, but they, they can't live alongside of them. Would and I you think in many, let us kill two Marvel films a year in order to have 10 comedies? Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, that's also 
where I live. So I mean, yes, I, <laughs> like you know, like I, yeah. So, but I mean, but 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 more importantly, I guess what I'm saying is what I do appreciate about streaming now is you don't have to worry about having an opening weekend. If you do something good, if you do it for a budget, you can make a movie like Ali Wong and Randall Park did. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, you could do, you can just do, you can make different choices. I think that Bill and Ted's was more successful because is it was it was streaming. Everyone watched it. I don't know if everyone would have raced to the theater for it. It has nothing to do with the quality of it. It just means that I don't think that people race. It's not must-see. When you are paying $15 a ticket or whatever the fuck you're paying, it's not... It's like, I don't need to go see that in the theater. Most comedies you don't need to go see in the theater. I mean, it's almost you like do. you have to start releasing comedies like in an A24 indie Sundance movie model. Yeah. Where you like platform it really gradually, build up the release and make it like a thing, which is what they did with movies. I mean, that is what they did I know. with like, Super um, bad. yeah, if we can't have comedies open wide because their numbers will always look small compared to the Marvel movie of the week, then we just have to do it differently. Because people love seeing movies like comedies in a group, don't they? I I love that communal experience. I'm just saying, but it doesn't make people want to go. Like Mm -hmm. people don't realize that that's just a huge part of it. Because you could also have people at your house. I'll go out on a limb and say this. Palm Springs, if it came out in movie theater times and wasn't just right on Hulu like that, it would not have made the dent that it did. People want to see comedies. People love comedies. But you have to literally like put it in front of their face and say, there's no risk to this. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar was one of the, I love that movie so, so much. It's so fucking funny. Um, I think one of the obstacles to that movie was that it was $20 to get. If it was Mm -hmm. streaming on Hulu, I think everyone would have watched it. If it was streaming on Netflix, everyone would have watched it. And, And there's, there's a reason why Adam Sandler movies are the most popular movies on Netflix. It's like, it's right there. I, I will watch every Adam Sandler movie because I don't have to pay $15 to go see it. Good, bad, whatever. I don't care. I hit play. You know, Hubie Halloween. Great. I'm in. Like, you know, it's like, I don't feel any risk to it. And I think that people need to know that if they're spending $15, sorry, this is a real rant here, but if people are spending $15, it's got to be good. And I don't think that we, I don't think that comedy, I think that people just don't race to comedies because of that. And we're giving them free podcasts and we're giving them free, you know, there's so many ways to get people TikTok, whatever. It's like, why am I going to pay 15 bucks? I'll, I'll sit and watch TikTok for 30 minutes and I'll get the same amount of laughs. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> but. So you're saying mm-hmm. you lament that The Hangover was one of the last of its eras, the gigantic comedy that everybody saw that created a huge movement. Uh, well, I, I, I want to, if we're going to say that, I, w- I would say that Seth Rogen is the sole responsible member f- uh, for making balls out comedies. And when I say balls out comedy, I don't mean like dude comedies. I just mean like making comedy movies that are not like they're funny. They are just they are funny. They don't need to be anything else. They don't need to have heart. They do. And they are very well put together. But it's like when you look at like um, blockers and good boys um, and you look at, you know, these other movies, you know, that, uh, you know, this is the end. Like they are they are just like I think he's the only person right now that is doing that is doing the traditional like this is a yeah. fucking good this is a comedy like this is nothing else it's not trying to be anything else Longshot is a great romantic comedy it's not you know it uh but that doesn't mean it's less than a comedy it's still got tons of jokes yeah. you know I don't know that, he's consistent that's my as hell opinion. I admire the yeah. hell I, I admire the hell out of his body of work but we're not doing a Seth Rogen film next we are not we are not 
But we are doing a movie that I think will address some of these issues that we just talked about, about maybe representation. And I think we'll talk about uh, a different point of view because this next movie that we're doing, um, I think it's and we're going to get seismic in its own way. Giant, giant in its own way. So, yeah, why don't you lead us into it? Well, we are doing a movie about women behaving badly. We are doing Bridesmaids. I'm engaged. Oh, my God. He asked me last night. What is happening? So will you be my maid of honor? Of course I will. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. No, just whatever. Throw the bachelorette party in the shower and... Oh, my God. (laughs) Let's go meet the rest of the bridal party. Come on. Get to punch it a couple times. You remember my cousin Rita? They just bought a new house. It is gorgeous. I wouldn't know. I only see the kitchen and the laundry room and the ceiling in my bedroom. Sometimes the floor. This is Becca from work. This is your husband? Oh, no, I don't know him. I'm single. I was so distraught when I was single. And I'm fine being by myself. Oh, Becca. This is Dougie's sister, Megan. You must be Annie's fella. I'm not. He's not. I'm not with him. I'm glad he's single, because I'm going to climb that like a tree. You have to meet Helen. You're so pretty. (laughs) So cute. Did you come from work? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And uh, I can't wait to rewatch that. Another movie that I have a very similar feeling about, and I probably will have to be as tight-lipped about as well. But I will tell you this much. um, I love revisiting these movies that were a moment. Like, we get all these stars. Like, And and one of the reasons why I would put Hangover into space is because without the Hangover, I've given you a lot of reasons why I wouldn't. The one reason why I would, without the Hangover, we don't get some of these people that we love now as mainstream people and, and and what they were able to do. I mean, you look at even what Bradley Cooper has done outside of the comedy space because most of his stuff is outside. Like, he wouldn't have gotten those opportunities if he didn't maneuver his career that way. You know, so um, there's a lot of great that came out of Hangover that affects many things. But like I say on the show, a lot of times, just because at first doesn't mean it's the best. I feel like that gets an air horn sound. (laughs) Well, Bridesmaids, you know where it is. You know how to find it. Uh, Enjoy the watch. And we will see you next week. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.